Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where tonight's going to be a very interesting night, as it is each and every single week here at Talk Junkies. Uh, just myself here this evening. The other two gentlemen won't be here tonight, but that's okay. We have a fantastic uh, guest joining us. But before we get into that, check out our last podcast. I had uh, Jay Goodbinder on. He's actually a local guy here in Kansas City. He's an epigenetist talking about how he helps people cope through uh, diseases, autoimmune disease, and um, cancers, stuff like that, and how he's hel- helping people get off of those types of things. Um, you can't say the word cure here on the internet for some reason, but he is uh, definitely helping people out on their journey when they do have um, issues like that. But um, if you've listened to our podcast, and most of you have that are just, you know, reoccurring guests, uh, we've talked about death, what happens after you die, um, or just down that journey. You know what I'm saying? Sorry, I, I kind of lost my train of thought. But um, so we're going to kind of get into that again tonight, but maybe from a different perspective. And this gentleman that's joining us tonight is the founder of the Forever Family Foundation, author of The Medium Explosion, which I have his book right here, right in front of me. And he's featured in the Netflix dossier, Surviving Death. He's been investigating mediumship and other evidence of life after death since 2003, and he conducts certification processes by which mediums are evaluated to see if they can do what they claim. And um, Robert, thanks for joining Talk Junkies, man. Pleasure to have you. It's my pleasure to be with you tonight. Fantastic, man. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and your journey and how you got here, man. Well, I guess it has been a journey. I mean, if, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I would think that somebody like me is a little off their rocker, you know, that talking about stuff that we can't perceive with our five senses. You know, I was a left brain thinker. Um, I didn't really ponder what happens after death too much. I was just too busy living my life. Um, but I thought that we were, uh, we were our brains, our brains produce consciousness. And uh, so therefore when our brains are no more after physical death, it was totally illogical to think that we went someplace. I thought that was just a religious perspective, you know, and, uh, no evidence, but it, it's nice to think that there's a place that we go, but I really didn't believe it. Um, you know, and then a lot of, uh, Oftentimes, personal tragedy and trauma leads to exploration, you know, and that's what happened in my case when my uh, my daughter passed away, you know, when she was 15. Um, and I was trying to figure out uh, just for my own sanity, whether there were any credible people that had um, credible evidence that we were more than our physical bodies, because I wanted to know if it was possible that she could still survive, you know, in some form. Um, and not only survive, but as a parent, you want to know, well, is she okay? Um, and then I, I took the the science route. I, I started tra- traveling across the country. I was meeting with medical doctors and scientists and researchers that, that studied uh, consciousness and, and the mind. And I started to learn things that I thought were just incredible. Uh, and then one thing led to another. Uh, eventually, as you mentioned, we, we started the Forever Family Foundation in 2003. Well, kind of a convergence of science and spirituality. But in essence, and you might have talked to some people on your show already. Sometimes I know I'll, I'll be talking to um, some physicists today. And a physicist, you would think, they're, are deeply rooted in material science. And halfway through the conversation, scratching my head say wait a second this guy sounds like a spiritualist not a physicist but essentially it's the same thing because the the physicist physicist is talking about the big bang and how we're all 
uh, remnants of the Big Bang and re remain connected that way. And the spiritualist is saying, well, we're we all have this divine spark that connects us. So essentially, they're saying the same the same thing, but you know, from a different perspective. So kind of consensus from these, you know, very intellectual people who are, you know, they they have a really good craft in what they do and they're well acknowledged for that. They they you're saying in consensus, they're saying that there is a divine spark within us. Yeah, I mean, everything points to um, us being connected. Now, um, how we're connected is 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 the big question. You know, is is um, uh, you know, for instance, uh, we know that telepathy. Um, exists mind-to-mind um, -mind communication people perceive information that way it's the first thing that I discovered uh, because in order to believe in life after that to believe in an afterlife you have to believe that our brains um, are different than our mind uh, when I say our mind uh, you could use the term soul um, uh, or you could use the term consciousness but something has to go beyond the body. So um, I once did a, a remote viewing experiment because I had read so much on the subject. And, you know, the, 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 our government had used remote viewers in the Cold War to spy on the Russians. And remote viewers are people that can, for lack of a better way of putting it, they can send their mind or their consciousness to another site and the government used to give these remote viewers latitudes and longitudes of of uh, what they believed were were uh, military operations, and the remote viewer would would visit that site with their mind and then draw these amazingly um, accurate depictions of what they saw. Um, so I, I mean, I did my own experiment like that with with. Um, membership in the foundation this was back in 2005 and I told people that I, every night for, at a certain time interval between 9 and 9 15 p.m. I was going to draw a picture I was going to do it for five consecutive nights and I, I asked people even if they didn't believe in this stuff or, or don't think they're intuitive or you know they they just do me a favor and pick up a piece of uh, a paper and a pencil and just make a drawing and at the end of the five nights send me the drawings and on the last night i decided i'm going to mix it up a little bit instead of a drawing something i did a, a a series of geometric shapes like a dot with concentric circles around it um and then the results started coming in i started opening up all these envelopes i mean at the time i probably had like 50 60 people responded um and i was really disappointed because you know nothing uh, was a match. I mean, I could stretch some of them, but it really was no match. And the very last envelope that I opened was from a woman um, in Bend, Oregon. And I opened it up and I was, I was just blown away because two of the images that I drew were exact. I mean, with every detail, exactly the way I drew them. The other two, all of the components were there but they weren't quite put together the way I drew them. And I had, from my own research, I, I found out that that happens often. But the reason that this was um, so profound to me, first of all, I drew those concentric circles on Friday. She drew them on Wednesday. So then I raised that raised the question of who was remote viewing whom, you know? right. <laughs> because I drew it two days after. And, and evidently also in remote viewing, time um, and distance don't matter. So I said to myself, okay, here's Bob sitting in New York, 
with, with Bob's brain and Bob's skull. And this woman sitting 3,000 miles away in Oregon with her brain sitting in her skull. According to material science, it's not possible for her to, to draw the exact same things that I'm drawing, if you want to eliminate fraud and, you know, that we were in cahoots somehow, you know. So that convinced me everything that I had had been reading that our mind can extend beyond our body. And we, I mean, we know that from a lot of different disciplines, you know, near-death experiences where people leave their bodies and see things from a different vantage point and, and so forth. So um, once you believe that, then believing that we could survive a physical death, you know, becomes logical. You know. So two things real quick. Um, those remote, So the remote viewers, is, is that unclassified or information from the government that we can look up ourselves and see that they were actually people doing that? Yes. Um, it's called the Stargate Project. Okay. And for, um, you know, like 20 years, it was classified. Uh, but about, I don't know, it's not been that long, but I guess about three, four years ago, it became unclassified. So you could look up the Stargate, you know, program, you know, from the CIA and you could, and you know, you could read all about it. It, it is incredible. And, you know, if the, the government wouldn't have been investing all those many years and the time and the money um, um, if they didn't, if they weren't getting good results. Well, what's interesting about that, and I don't want to go too far into it, but I'm sure that there has to be some types of videos that exist um, that are probably still classified that would give it more further evidence that it's legit, you know, because, People, you'll, you'll tell people, well, yeah, the government released it and it's unclassified and people won't do the time to actually research it and read that piece of paper and say, oh, okay, you're right. That's, you know, and not only that, but people have a distaste and distrust for the government. But sorry, secondly, yeah. um, would you say that w within your own experience with, um, what's it called again, remote viewing? Yeah. Um, remote, yeah. Would you say that that's maybe like a small scale? Like th that was like beginners, not luck, but it was like, what I'm, what I guess what I'm trying to say is that the mind is so it's capable of doing amazing things and we're not really taught that, you know what I'm saying? So do, do you think yeah. that maybe that's compared to the people who are doing it for the government, you were doing it on a really small scale? Yeah. And, and, and there were people, um, doing it on that same, um, uh, small scale for a hundred years before the government got involved, maybe not a hundred, but certainly, you know, more than 50 years because some of the books that were was reading um, were from the 1920s and 1930s where people were doing experiments like that. And people do remote viewing all the time. They don't even know they're doing, they don't call it remote viewing, but their minds are wandering to, to other locations and they're, you know, you can call it visions. Um, you know, I mean, I, you know, what really got me started was um, my son and my, my daughter, um, were involved in an accident. That was the accident that my, my, my daughter didn't survive her injuries and my son was seriously injured. But the point was the morning of that accident, at three o'clock in the morning, my wife sat, you know, shot up in bed. She was sitting up and she was shaking. I said, what's the matter? And she said, she just looked at me like her eyes were all glassy. I said, what's the matter? And she said, something horrible is gonna happen today. And I said, what does that mean? She said, I can't, I can't give you the details, but our lives are going to be changed forever um, today. So, you know, I, I did what, what most parents would do. I mean, I watched over my three kids, you know, and uh, most of the day, one was already at college. The other one, I was taking the college the next day. And my, uh, my little one was working a part-time job. And then I let my, my guard down at night and 
you know, like I said, okay, I just dismissed it. I forgot all about it. She couldn't have been right. And of course she was right. Um, so people have these precognitive um, experiences all the time. Now, are they getting a glimpse of the future? Um, or I was open to the possibility that maybe she was send somebody was sending her a message. Now that message could have been from a living source or it could have been from a discarnate source, you know, but, um, in any event, um, it, it's been happening since the dawn of man, you know, I mean, you know, we've, most of the, most of the, the, the leaders of, of, you know, in, in today's organized religions, um, prophets and so forth came out of these ages of mysticism, you know, back in ancient times. And these ages lasted, you know, um, 10,000 years. Um, and people regularly believed in this stuff, you know, I mean, that became weaned out of us. But uh, people used to communicate telepathically, and they used to commune with their ancestors and, and, and so forth. Um, you know, and then scientific re re revolution came along, and we were taught that this was nonsense. But perhaps um, oh, it, it just becomes a matter of, of returning to our roots one day. You know? No, exactly. You know? And I definitely want to get into some more of the life after death, but this is just a fascinating topic. And it, and it always stretches my mind because I've had a lot of spiritual people on this podcast. Um, and, it, and it's just fascinating to me that we left our roots, right? And there was probably a period of time when we were all more connected more so than we are today. And I think we all can agree today we're probably – more disconnected than we've ever been. Um, why do you think that's the case? And and I'm not I'm not suggesting or blaming mainstream science and the and the revolution of science, right? But when you go back to the early 1900s and you see um, clear evidence of the Rockefellers and you know rich elite people taking over the medical system, taking over the education system, and in and having that happen, that creates what we have now with science. So do you think that those people had a part to play in that and kind of shaping the world how they see it? Yeah, I mean, we um, we are influenced by our, our we have cultural influences, societal influences, religious influences, educational influences, and they shape the way that we think. Um, and a lot of the people that we deal with in in, in my realm, uh, medical doctors and, and researchers, they dismiss overwhelming evidence because if it were true, it challenges their education, it challenges their profession, it challenges the very nature of what they do. So they desperately don't want to, they just ignore the evidence, they don't want to believe it. What's interesting is though, there have been some surveys done among scientists um, and deeply rooted in like Newtonian physics. And one of the questions in the survey is if they believed in God. Um, and you would think that a scientist, you know, has not really seen any evidence, there's just blind faith. And yet like 70, 75% of the scientists, you know, believe um, in God, despite the fact that they haven't seen any evidence. But yet when they have they see these studies sometimes with odds against chance in the billions to one, they dismiss that because they can't replicate it in a lab. So it's like a double, a double standard there. Right. Uh, so do you, um, do you almost think that maybe we're okay? So maybe, maybe not. Cause we've left our roots, like you said. So it's almost, I, I don't want to ask the question, but I'm just going to say it is maybe we're not me meant to know how all this is supposed to work. Yeah, and that's a legitimate question. That's something that, that we hear a lot. A lot of people say, um, 
we're not meant to know, you know, you're here to live your life um, the best that you can, um, you know, and don't try to, uh, to go where you're not supposed to go. I don't personally believe that. I think that the opposite is, of tr- is true. I think perhaps the meaning of our, of our lives are physical in the physical world are to, to catch glimpses of these worlds that remain unseen to us. I mean, you know, what do we see? We, we only can sense about 5% of the universe. You know, we, we can't see dark matter. We can't see radio waves. You know, we, we can't see gravity. You know, we're taught to believe in all these things and we trust them. Um, and we build foundations based upon these things. But in essence, um, they're all, you know, part, part of the unknown, you know. So, um, you know, maybe our purpose is, is, to, is to recognize the 95% that we can't perceive. No, I like that. Yeah, I, I'm to the belief that, and it's very hard to do because I've, I guess, I'm not going to say indoctrinated but or brainwashed, but I've been, I've created habits in my life based upon what the culture is here, you know, in the Midwest where I live. And it's, it's extremely hard to break those habits, but they can be broken, obviously. But be, becoming more spiritual, meditating, um, you know, being one with your body, treating your body like a vessel, treating your body like a child, right? like you would treat your child, right? Treating your body like a temple, all of those things. And I think that if everyone were to do that, then we would all be, we'd be all closer to that divine spark. You know what I'm saying? If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, and you know, one of the things about um, studying life after death is that there's a lot of evidence um, that suggests that the way in which we live our physical lives um, affects um at least our starting place or where we wind up in the next world. And I don't, I'm not talking about a, uh, this from a religious perspective, you know, just that uh, the consensus is that we are our own, uh, it's all about self-judgment. So if you, if near-death experiences provide uh, wonderful evidence, because in a near-death experience, the person meets every definition that medical science has for death. They have no brain waves, they have no respiration, they have no heartbeat, they have no reflexes, they're dead. And, um, and yet, they, those that are being resuscitated, uh, and more and more are now because of uh, our medical, medical advancements, uh, they report clear and lucid thinking. And they have certain commonalities in what they report. One of the things that a lot of people report, certainly not all, but a large percentage of experiences, is that they have a life review. And in that life review, they describe it sort of like a movie reel that flashes before them of their whole life. And they get to feel, to like physically feel um, the warmth and the good and the love of from good things that they bestowed upon others, you know, through their compassion and empathy. On the other hand, they also get to feel that uncomfortable uh, feeling of all the harm that they've done to others, whether they did it on purpose or not. But they get to feel what they bestowed upon others in that sense, too. That can't be too comfortable. So it's an incentive, if you believe that, um, to live your life, you know, the best way that you can. There's also, um, of course, you know, ha- we only know this from near-death experiences and, and, and sort of channel reports and history from mediumship, but it's thought that we we go 
uh, among people of like mind and character. That's as our starting point. So like people want to know about afterlife justice. I mean, they want to know that Adolf Hitler doesn't go to the same place that your loved one goes, you know? So maybe somebody like Adolf Hitler goes to uh, people of like mind and character, you know? Um, You know, and so um, I don't believe in the heaven and the hell, but, you know, but, but it's a, it it can't be a a comfortable position to, 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 to recognize your, because you have now you have this self judgment and you know that, that that's got to hurt. Um, but on the other hand, the consensus is that there's there's advancement on the other side. That's who he was in the in the physical world based upon his upbringing and his values and what he was taught. But it's now when he's this, in this other dimension when he's this entity of consciousness of pure thought and energy. Um, he doesn't have all that physical baggage. So perhaps somebody like him, you know, advances like the rest of us, you know, that the soul is on a different level than all the physical bullshit that takes place. Right. So is it the American Death Association or, or who does these studies? Sorry. Um, well, uh, you know, for instance, in near-death experiences, it's mostly um, a lot of cardiologists uh, have done them. Um you know, in, in that Netflix series that you mentioned, uh, uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson, who's at the University of Virginia, is one of the um, uh, biggest researchers in that field. And, and um, the reason it's cardiologists is that um, most people that have heart attacks wind up in, a, in, the, in the ER attached to all this equipment. So you're in a position to be able to talk to them as soon as they get resuscitated, because a great many heart attack patients do get resuscitated if they're lucky. So, um, so a lot of it takes place, um, you know, um, in hospital settings, and then a lot of the people conduct research in, in you know, in laboratory type uh, settings as well. Um, in reincarnation, uh, this 40 years of research from uh, Ian Stevenson was also a medical doctor. He traveled around the, the world for, for 40 years um, researching past life memories of children. Children talk about a life that they had before they were born into this one. And then they act like detectives. They pull medical records and autopsy reports and they go back to the neighborhoods if, um, where they say they used to live and, and they put together um, a whole uh, uh, report, you know, basically with a ledger of all these statements, you know, that that are true and they they measure it that way. So the the evidence from reincarnation is pretty compelling. I mean, admittedly, that was like the the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around. You know, I I had a lot of questions about reincarnation. I still do, but I can't argue with the evidence. Yeah. So now that you just bring up reincarnation, I'll just give you a brief like kind of thing or a brief overview of what Howdy's idea of reincarnation is. So you talk about whenever you see the light, right? And and whenever you have that near-death experience. And there are people who have came out of it and, you know, they're able to share their experiences. I've met a few people and um, through work. And you, you kind of take their word for it, right? You know, they said that they had a near-death experience. So you, you take it at face value. Um, but I haven't, ha- I haven't had someone specifically say they, they saw the light. One said they didn't really remember. It was groggy. And the other one said that he was on a beach uh, and talk to God on the beach doing cocaine. So, <laughs> and he, you know what I'm saying? Granted, he, I guess he was in a coma, but he said he had a near death experience, but 
So what Howdy suggests is that whenever you see the light, that's a or Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or a loved one or your grandma, or your mom, whoever it is, you see that person whenever you whenever you have your near death experience. What he is saying is that is an evil entity portraying to be that person to trick you into going into the light. So then you you will go to that light and then they say, hey, you did this. Like you talked about, you made this person, they, they make you feel those good feelings. They make you feel those bad feelings. And they say, hey, you did a lot of bad stuff. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to uh, wipe your memory and you're going to have to go back to earth and prove to us that you're ready for the next level. And then boom, you're reincarnated. Yeah. Well, you know, what you said is true in terms of people that have near-death experiences. I mean, they always talk about it being ineffable. They can't put their experience into language. So it's a hard process. But when they do, somebody um, in Asia might describe seeing um, a religious figure that they interpret. You know, uh, you know, somebody might see Mohammed. Somebody might see Jesus. Somebody might see uh, Moses. You know, but, but it's because of their, they're filtering it through their cultural and religious influences. They're all essentially seeing this being of light or light that they're interpreting you know, as, as these things. The most fascinating thing with, with near-death experiences, if you're looking for, for proof, of, is they have these veridical experiences. So when they talk about leaving the body and, and, have, and being above the body and watching everything that's going on in the operating room, and, and then when they come back, bear in mind these are people that are dead, you know, they can tell you clearly, repeat the exact conversations that took place um, and describe who came in and out of the operating room, you know, describe the equipment. Um, there was a famous study by Dr. Kenneth Ring uh, with near-death uh, experience uh, uh, patients who were uh, sightless, they were blind from birth. And yet um, they come back and they can describe everything with vivid de detail about you know what, what what went on in the operating room, including colors that people were wearing and so forth. So, and the reason they'll be able to do that is because you know it's theorized that you know that their their mind um, separated from their you know, physical body. And then of course when they when they get brought back, um, their soul or mind or consciousness you know collapses back into the body, and they're not happy. <laughs> Most right. of them. You know, to come back, to, you know, to be wrecked with pain again, yep. um, plus the fact that where they were, they describe in most cases, not all as being blissful, you know, and warm and loving and who wants to come back to this shit, right? Right. <laughs> so so, I, so real quick, I would say like to people who aren't really believers in that type of stuff and they're like, you, you bring the evidence, you have these people who, who are conducting these um, research, uh, these research programs and they, they put extensive amounts of work into it. And they're finding out these people are having legitimate, they're leaving their body, they're seeing what's going on. And then, well, people would say, oh, well, that's just, you know, they're dying, their brain's releasing DMT, and it's making their body be able to do something that it wouldn't normally be able to do. But that, to me, that doesn't even really make sense. What, it, what it's suggesting to me is that we are more capable of doing something that we have no idea we can do. Yeah, you know, the, the, there's a researcher um, named... Uh, Dr. Charles Tart, and he did an experiment. He, he was doing actually um, dream studies, um, and he would um, he did an experiment where he had somebody go into a dream state, 
and unbeknownst to anybody, he hid a five-digit number on top of a book that was on top of a, of a six-foot um, bookcase. And he asked this patient, you know, as part of the experiment, on the theory that she she claimed to be able to leave her body while she was in the dream state. She could have, she could almost induce an out of body experience. So he said, okay, well, why don't you just read me the number while you're above the body? Um, and she was able to do that. You know, the odds against guessing, you know, a, a random five digit number are, are, you know, pretty high. So kind of tells you that she was really doing what she claimed, you know, I mean, you can make the argument that, yeah, that this is phony or that, you know, it was some sort of collusion, but he's a legitimate researcher and, you know, it's been verified and it's been replicated a couple of times after that. So something is leaving the body. No, for sure. And I don't think it's temporary. I think that, like you said, most in, well, in all cases with people who come back, cause they do come back for after life or life after death experiences, the majority of them are, are feeling these same types of experiences and not everyone in the operating room is able to reaccount that. That's just a few accounts, right? It's not every single one. Yeah. You know, I think this is, I don't know the exact statistics, but you know, only probably, um, you know, 20 or 25% of the people who, you know, get resuscitated actually come back and talk about having a near death experience for the, for um, the majority, they just describe, you know, nothing, you know, um, but um, so it, it doesn't, then you raise the question, why doesn't everybody have it? And, you know, and something, it really doesn't matter. Like, you know, a lot of people attribute it to, you know, to certain drugs and medications, but it happens in both cases when people, it happens with people that haven't been deprived of oxygen at all through the whole episode. So it, that kind of eliminates the explanation that it's, you know, oxygen deprivation, uh, that are causing these hallucinations. Some people are on meds and some people are not. So even, um, even if that's the case, though, you don't have a hallucinate, hallucinate, uh, sorry, hallucination that can describe what people are saying and what they're wearing to 100 percent certainty. Exactly. The, you know you what know, I'm saying? Yeah. And then so the, there are like fighter pilots sometimes have hypoxia, you know, where they have hallucinations because of the lack of oxygen. And but the hallucinations are generally um they're anything but clear and lucid. They're thrashing about, the, you know, the, the fragments that can't make sense of it. You know, they're all over the place. It's not, you know, um, you know, clear and lucid thinking from an impaired brain doesn't make any sense, you know, but, you know, but, but yet these people describe uh, thinking clearer than they ever did before in their lives, you know, or realer than real, you know, they describe it. So, um, you know, I, I think it's it's pretty uh, the evidence is pretty compelling. And, you know, there are various things. Not everybody doesn't see the light and you know, everybody doesn't go through a tunnel. You know, everybody doesn't meet their deceased loved ones. Uh, there are a lot of there's about 10 or 15 different types of things that some people report. But there are a lot of commonalities um, and a lot of people. The most interesting thing is, is a lot of a very high percentage of these experiences come back and they they change their lives completely. Things that were important to them are no longer important to them. They lose all fear of death. Uh, material possessions um, are no longer important, and so forth. So, and that stays with them, and you know, for the rest of their lives. So, um, whether you believe in it or not, something's happening that flipped them. For sure. 
Yeah. I, I almost think, man, and uh, I almost think if you go back to ancient times and you just look at the pyramids uh, th- scattered throughout the world, you know, they're all very similar. They all came up and resurrected around the same time. I am into a belief that there was a world, or it, was, it was a, it was a world similar to ours today, right? But it was in, it was more spiritual, more spiritual based. It wasn't materialistic. Granted, they built these large, massive uh, pyramids, but I think again, I just think they were more spiritual, and that's just what it was. And I don't, you know, but it makes you wonder if they were more spiritual, then how did that civilization end? Type of thing, you know? Yeah. Well, you know what I always found fascinating when you go back, you know, like tens of thousands of years, and you, you know, they're discovering in these cave paintings. Um, and, and that are all similar in different parts of the world. You know, I mean, there weren't boats and planes and, you know, people weren't traveling, you know, to other remote places in the world, but yet the paintings are all the same. How'd that come about? Um, so it, that I always thought that, that that's fascinating and archaeologists continue to discover things like that. It could almost be remote viewing and they had no idea they were doing it. And they brought, you know what I'm saying? That's true. Yeah. See, that's, that's why. Yeah, that's wild. You, you start putting some of the pieces together. So, that's a little bit about the life after death, man. But can we go into a little bit about mediumship? Because I've had, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I've had quite a bit of death in my family, and I've never really thought to reach out and try and find someone to communicate with. Like, you know, probably my stepfather would be the person I'd want to talk to the most. You know, he passed away at an early age. I loved him so much. Um, what? I mean, where do you begin on on, on medium mediumship? Well, you know, mediums are people who claim to be able to talk to the dead, you know. Um, um, so I, you know, I've been working with mediums um, since 2003, and I started, I don't like to call it testing, but I started evaluating under controlled conditions the the, the evidence that they put forth. And like in, in, in that book, my book that you mentioned, The Medium Explosion, I say that based upon witnessing well over a thousand readings over that time and my work with the certification process that 85 to 90% of all the practicing mediums out there today cannot do what they claim. Um, that doesn't, I'm not saying that they're all frauds. Some of them are, um, most are not. We all have some degree of intuitive ability, you know, um, in various degrees, you and I have some intuitive ability. Um, but um, some people are more intuitive than others, but that's not saying that they, you know, can communicate, you know, with the dead. It seems to be mind-to-mind communication, you know, telepathic communication from two living entities seems to be a different skill set than mind-to-mind communication with somebody who no longer has a body. Essentially, it's the same thing, just that one person is no longer in body, but they still have a mind. So theoretically, the mediums can still talk to them. Um, so, you know, when we're working with mediums, we separate the general stuff from the specific stuff. So um, if you now, if you're the medium and you're giving me a reading and you see me and you can guess about how old I am and you say to me, Bob, I have your great grandmother here in spirit. You have a great grandmother that, that, that passed. And I'm like, well, shit, yeah, she'd be 130, you know, so, <laughs> uh, so it's a good, you know, but it's right. So if I was scoring it, I'd have to mark it as a hit because it's a true statement. But if you say to me, Bob, um, I have your great grandmother, Rebecca, here, and she was born in Hungary and she was known for her goulash and she, you know, and go on with specific pieces of information 
that you couldn't really Google, you know, um, and, and those should be given more weight when you're evaluating uh, the evidence than just a general statement. So there are a lot of mediums. You, you may have heard of cold reading techniques. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll repeat the same things. They'll make judgments based upon, you know, your accent or your way you look and your age and so forth. And um, we, uh, there's a medium that, a very good medium that we certified. And last year, he caught another medium that was doing a reading for somebody. And he was, he was watching and, and the medium it was on Zoom and the medium had a split screen. So on one half of the screen was the medium talking with the sitter, the person getting the reading. And on the other side of the medium screen was the sitter's Facebook page that was open. And the medium was just spitting back all the information that he was getting from her on, um, from the sitter on Facebook. You know, you could, there's a lot of information out there. Oh yeah. You know, and the medium, I mean, the sitter, the, uh, the person getting the reading doesn't know anything about this. It's, wow, this is the greatest medium in the world, except it was a totally fraudulent reading. Yeah. You know, so there are certain, you want you don't want to give the medium information. You have to let them know if they're right or they're not right, but you don't want to feed them you know, by giving them information. Their job is to give you the evidence. Um, so the point is that the, the, the 10 or the 15% of these extraordinary people that can do this can have a profound effect among the grie grieving people because, um, let's face it, I mean, the only thing that could give you any hope and comfort when you lost somebody close is, is thinking that they still survive. And then if you're getting, you know, um, evidence from that, them and you know you talk, you feel like you're talking to them, um, that could be transformative, you know, and stay with you and really change the way you, you live your life. So um, it's a double-edged sword, you know, and with mediums, you know, they could do a lot of damage. I mean, they're sitting with people that are in fragile mental states. Um, they may not, they may be on the fence about whether there is an afterlife or there's not. They go to a medium, they get a horrible reading and they walk out of there saying, this is all a crock and, and, and they're in worse shape than they were, you know, before. So mediumship has to be taken seriously. Um, you know, I mean, what other, who else do you know that deals with the public, um, especially involving mental health, but there's no regu no regulatory body, there's no ethical standards, there's no um, uh, proficiency standards, there's no continuing education. Tomorrow you could just, I could go out and say, I'm Bob the Medium, start charging people 300 an hour and, you know, start spewing out bullshit. Yep. So, um um, it's it's it, it is a problem. It's one of the reasons that you know I wrote the book and we we take it really seriously. So, whenever you started this journey, whenever you know your daughter had passed, were you seeking out to speak with her through a medium? And, and did you did you ever find that person? And and what was that experience like? If so, yeah. Well, I didn't. You know, I didn't believe in mediums first of all. So I mean, but my wife, you know, did. My wife was very spiritual. Um, she. Um, she knew how important the science was, but she didn't need the science to tell her what she already knew internally. She just had a knowing. I needed the science because things were happening all around us, um, and I kept dismissing everything because it didn't fit into my frame of reference. So what the science did for me um, is that it opened me up more in a spiritual sense so I could recognize things that were happening around me. So um, 
Yeah, my wife dragged me uh, to see a medium. It was a well-known medium, and, and um, we were meeting her in this hotel in Manhattan. Um, and I'm sitting there like, why am I here? This is bullshit. This can't possibly be real. And the medium gave me three unbelievably specific pieces of information that nobody in the world knew except for my wife. Um, things that, that had just, you know, occurred. And all, all the way home, um, on the ride home, I'm scratching my head, figure, trying to figure out what the trick was. There had to be a trick, you know. Um, and it wasn't, you know. So that, um, I didn't walk away believing in mediums after that, but it certainly opened the door to further exploration. Um, so, um, you know, in, in all the years, we, we started um, certifying mediums in 2005. So that's what, like 18 years now. And in those 18 years, we've only certified 27 mediums, you know, and it's like less than two a year, you know, it's only one or two a year. So the standards are very high. But in all that time, in the 18 years, I never got a reading from one of the mediums that we certified. And the, the only reason for that, even though I, I knew they were among the very best, is that most of them knew too much about me. So yeah. I knew that I wouldn't trust the information. Um, even though I knew they wouldn't resort to any tactics, I had, you know, I couldn't do it, you know, so I, I didn't want to, um, so I just never went for a reading, but, um, you know, before the foundation, we, I went to a few, some were good, some were horrible. Um, but, uh, that was more like my own research. So with the, with the 20 plus, uh, people who have been certified is, um, is there any, um, interest from you know government or the science community to kind of pick these people's brains to see why it is they're so special and what they're able to do yeah it's probably about half of the mediums that we've certified have taken part in scientific research um a lot of them have had their uh brain studies hooked up to eegs mris um looking for areas in the brain that might light up or go dark or, you know, different lobes that are, seem to be involved. Um, and plus a lot of mediums that took, they, they've also taken parts and uh, taken a part in research with the, with the researchers is trying to verify whether they're giving evidential information, you know, and they use blinded controls, you know, so it's a, it really is a scientific experiment. So, uh, yeah, they have a, there's a great many of them that are interested in the science. You know what? They also want to know how they're able to do what they do. They're curious, like we are. You know, how am I able to do this? You know, a lot of them started off and they, they were troubled. You know, they started off having these experiences they couldn't explain when they were kids. And and they just put it aside. A lot of them put it aside and dismissed it, you know, because they, they were they were fearful of it. Plus they didn't want to be labeled as being, you know, crazy or judged and so forth. And then only later in life did they, did they, um, come to, um, embrace it. Yeah, no, that's wild. That, that, yeah, that's, it's sad that whenever you're, if you're having those experiences as a child, that we as a society would be, that would be shunned upon, or it would, you know, they'd be like, Oh, they're kind of weird. Let's put them in a hospital and see what's going on or put them on some drugs or something. And, and potentially ruined the rest of that person's life. So luckily they, you know, kind of kept it to themselves. And I guess the process may, may have taken longer since they, you know, they weren't able to be who they are. I don't know, man. That's just, yeah, it's, it's sad that that's the type of society we live in. And it, it is. And, you know, when we used to run these discussion groups, called them afterlife discussion groups. We used to 
we stopped them after COVID hit, but we, they were physical groups in various parts of the country with a moderator. And I used to moderate a group in New York with my wife and you'd see people the first time that they would come to a meeting, you know, they, they wouldn't say a word, you know, they're just shut down, you know, they, you know, they just, you, you hardly knew they were there. And that might happen in the second meeting and the third meeting all of a sudden the fourth meeting comes and they start telling you stories about personal experiences they had that are just blowing your mind and you want to know like where were you why didn't you talk because what just what you were talking about they don't you know they don't want to be labeled as being crazy you know or judged by their peers you know um so people are are, tend to keep these things in i'll I'll tell you a quick story about a uh i went to uh about two years after my daughter died, I went to my f- uh, family doctor who was a friend of mine. And I don't remember why I was there. I had some ailment and I sit down. I haven't seen him in two years. And he's, I sit in his office. He says, you know, how are you? I said, fine. He says, what have you been doing? I said, you really want to know? I said, I- I've been studying uh, survival of consciousness. And he goes, oh, okay. And he goes talking a little, like a couple minutes later, he says, can I ask you something? I said, what? He says, what's survival of consciousness? So I said, talking about some of the stuff that we're talking about tonight. And then he gets this real serious look on his face and he closes the door. He says, can I tell you something? I said, yeah. He said, my father died seven years ago. I said, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. And he said, well, the, you know, my father died like at nine in the morning, but I had a lot of patients that were seriously ill in the hospital. So I had to call my answering service. So I called my answering service and he said, oh, doctor, um, your father called. And he said, my father died at nine o'clock this morning. And the, and the woman said, well, I'm so, so sorry, doctor. I, I didn't know. He must have said your father-in-law. And, and he said, my father-in-law has been dead for 13 years. And he said, what time did the message come in? And, and she looks and she said, 9.15. He said, read me back the message. And the message was, Frank, it's me. I'm okay. Oh, wow. So, okay, so here's a medical doctor. He never, it's been seven years, never told his wife, never told his kids, never told a friend, certainly never told a medical colleague. But he heard the stuff that I was talking about and he knew that I wasn't going to judge him. So he opened up to me. Now, I guarantee you, it's been, you know, 18 years since then and he's never told another soul. Right. <laughs> he's, he kept that in. So, I mean, I tell that to people sometimes because what a shame, like you you alluded to, that he feels that it's such an extraordinary experience, but he can't mention it to anybody because they'll think he's nuts. Yeah. You know, maybe if we all start talking about these experiences that we have, not trying to convince other people, but just sharing them, yep. more and more comes into the mainstream and it comes more and more accepted and we'd be better off as a people. Yeah. And and I guess you, you really, truly do have to experience it, you know, though, that's the big part. And, and telling, telling the stories, you know, I got the chills whenever you just told me that. And... I had a buddy, I was probably about 20 years old and, uh, he'd committed suicide. You know, he was a young kid and it, it was, it made, it was heartbreaking, man. He's one of my closest friends. And at the funeral, they were playing this God awful fu- uh, funeral music. You know, he had, they had a CD play, and it had one of his favorite songs on it by brand new. And they played that song and it played all the way through. And then the next song came on and it was just funeral, fu- fu- uh, funeral music. Sorry. All of a sudden it starts skipping. 
you know, and I'm sure this, this funeral place has had this music playing all the time. And now, now all of a sudden it's just skipping and they keep trying to play it over and over and it keeps skipping. And then they go back to his song and it played perfectly. Yeah, You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. That was kind of my first experience. And he gave me multiple experiences. Um, uh, my friend did. And that's just one example. But real quick, um, have you traveled to other countries and, and met with other people who, who do mediums or, or who are mediums in other countries? Because I'm sure that it's more well-practiced out in other countries. It is. You know, I, I've been in most of the mediums that we've certified. As a matter of fact, I think all of them are in the United States, although there are some coming up that are, that are in England. They've been to England, uh, the UK a few times um, in various, you know, medium events and talking to other mediums. But, you know, from the evaluation process, we can't solicit any other mediums. They have to come to us to protect the integrity of the of the program and no money can change hands and we do it all, you know, for free. But you're right. In certain countries, um, it's a lot more, uh, accepted, um, than, you know, in other countries. Um, you know, we used to, you know, years ago, um, you know, people used to call the foundation a lot and I never really had the patience for it, but whenever the phone would ring, uh, we had an office in our home, you know, my wife would pick up the call, um, and, you know, despite the enormous amount of work that we had, I mean, if the person was grieving, she'd stay on the phone with them for, you know, for two hours. But I remember one particular call that my, my wife didn't hear well to begin with, and she, she couldn't hear the person. The person was whispering. And then she later found out the woman lived in the heart of the Bible belt here. And, 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 um, you know, God forbid if somebody heard what she was talking about, you know, she'd be ostracized. Yep. You know, that that's a shame too. You know, you you have to whisper so nobody could could hear the stuff that you're talking about. So um, you know, it's that control that, that sometimes religion can hold over people that oh, they yeah. can't break loose of. Well, it's almost like, you know, the Salem witch trials or the witch trials back in the day when when you had these women who were probably able to do some of the stuff we're talking about. And people, yeah. people were scared by it, and then, you know, they got hung for it. That's what's crazy. Yeah, you know, and you talk about, the, you mentioned this before, is that there are a lot of people that are misdiagnosed. They're just highly intuitive, and they they pick up information, and the next thing you know, they're on a drug, on, on medication, especially with children. That's a real shame. You know, some children are highly intuitive, you know, and then everybody, you know, chalks it up to imagination of a child, but sometimes it gets more involved and the, the parent takes the child to a psychologist. The next thing you know, um, instead of embracing or encouraging their intuitive abilities, they're suppressed, you know, with medication. That's a shame. Yeah. I'm, I'm right now I'm on the advisory board of a, of a study that's being done at Yale Medical School. This was a unique thing because they want they're studying intuitive people and mediums who are mediums are able to shut down communication, you know, um, when they're not open for business, so to speak. They can control it so they can live their lives. Um, so what they're trying to do is study how mediums are able to stop voices that are coming in, hope, hoping that they could use the information to help people that have uh, psychoses, you know, and, and, and um, by teaching them techniques where they could shut down the voices, possibly without, you know, medicating them. I thought that was an interesting twist. And that, now they're going into phase two where they're also putting people in MRIs and doing, uh, you know, brain studies. So um, very cool. Yeah. 
So have you, with these mediums too, and I'm sure you personally know all of them because you certified them, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, what's the problem is that since we've certified so few and, you know, we've, we've grown, we have 13,000 members in 76 countries and we're respected in the scientific community. A lot of the mediums that we've certified over the years have become famous, you know, TV shows, they've written books. You know what happens when somebody becomes famous? Oh yeah. They have like three, four year waiting lists. They start right. charging ridiculous amounts of money, <laughs> well, you know, and they do fewer and fewer readings. That kind of defeats the purpose of having a resource for the bereaved. So well, I, I, we need, and that's on me because I haven't had the time to identify uh, more mediums that are good at what they do and they're, they're readily available, you know. Well, you're so one person, though. You're one yeah. person. It take, you know, it takes a, a conceited effort, but... What I was curious about is um, if they if they've had more success in um, I, I've heard through other spiritual people on the podcast that if you go to temples or if you go to, you know, really old churches or you go like to, to the pyramids, they had this special aura about them or this different energy. And I was curious if mediums have ever tried to do readings at, at maybe a place that had, you know, a higher energy and, and what that experience would be like. I don't know if that's a thing yeah, or not. Yeah, I've been in situations with them, um, you know, I've, where I've. I haven't been evaluating just in social settings where I'll be in a place and I'll say, oh, man, this is there's some powerful energy here, you know, and then you'll check into the history of it, you know, and there was and that gets into other things. You know, some places have what researchers would call residual energy. It's not spirits. It's just that the environment can retain, um, you know, information which they pick up on that as opposed to apparitions you know, or ghosts, which are really uh, visitations by, you know, by, by spirit entities, you know. But, yeah, a lot of the, the mediums uh, are very, very sensitive to various energies. And, like, you're right, and uh, there have been scientists that have done telepathic studies. It's hard, but they've tried to do it in, 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 pyram- in the pyramids. You know, the way that they, the pyramids were constructed um, – the theory is it, it was all about energy, you know, and then the energy is enhanced and contained and so forth. So, um, and a lot of scientists still believe that there are a lot of geomagnetic forces that, that enhance intuitive abilities. Yeah. I mean, I'm more of, of, of the idea that it's, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying the earth doesn't offer that, but I think it's more towards our consciousness that is able to do those types of things. I mean, that's wild that you said that, that a, a specific area is able to retain information and energy that that's wild. Yeah. And that, you know, and that, that happens and that's, you know, you see a lot of these shows on TV, these ghost hunting shows, you know, I think and most of them was, there aren't any real meters and, you know, gauges that, that could detect, a discarded entity, you know, it's more likely um, an explainable uh, physical, you know, explanation than a spiritual one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of places that, you know, you can just like, you've walked into rooms before and all of a sudden you feel like tense, you know, like something just happened in that room. Maybe there was an argument or, you know, I think that's an example of residual energy, you know. Um, sometimes people get creeped out or they feel good about, you know, because there's a, a kind of a warm, loving energy in a place. So I think we can, we're using our, something other than our known senses when we're able to pick up on things like that. Yeah. 
Well, we're getting close to the end of the hour here, man. I, I, I have maybe one or two more questions for you, but um, I think like the, the big one is, is we're very, we're here for a very short amount of time. Uh, whenever you, in the grand scheme of things, the grand scale of, of what this is that we live in and you know, the education system for whatever it is, why are we not taught about death? You know, I mean, like we, we know what it is, but why aren't we taught about it and our, our how to prepare for it? You know, like spiritually, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Minus religion. Not, not, you know what you're saying? And not only are we not taught about it, but everything in, in our lives are, are to avoid death and, yes. and to fear death. And, and you know, at all costs, even the medical profession, you know, you got to fight, you got to fight, you got to fight, you got to keep alive. You know, back in the day, I used to think that Dr. Kevorkian was a, was a bad dude, you know, that he was he was assisting people, you know, to die. Uh, now I think he's a hero, you know, have, having sitting, you know, sitting with my own loved ones that have been in unbelievable agony and pain, you know, and, you know, and that they're with, with no, you know, chance of recovery. Um, it seems like the, what's the purpose at that point? Is there a purpose? You know, everybody talks about learning lessons. What lessons are you learning at that point? You know, so, um, everybody, look, that's the biggest question that, that philosophers have been contemplating, right, for, for, for millennia is that, is there any meaning and purpose to, to this physical existence? But I think if you can remove the fear, um, and if you believe that there's some other place that we go, you could live your physical life much more fully um, and enjoy things more and get, you know, and, and more out of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it really is a problem. We just, people just don't, don't talk about, you know, death at all. You know, it's just, it's a subject. It's not even that. I know even after my daughter died, there are people that they just, they wouldn't even talk to me. They were uh, like, I was contagious, you know, like, you know, they're like, they're going to catch something because, you know, my, my, my daughter died because it's, people have this fear of, of, of the unknown. Um, you know, we're taught in the media and, and everything else that um, to to fear things that we can't perceive with with our physical senses. And I hope that that's going to change. I think it is, man. It's a slow movement, but I think we're getting closer each and every single day and doing podcasts like this help and trying to reach people and, and kind of show them that. But uh, just one last question for you. It's really all, the, the last one that I can really think of off the top of my head is, Weren't there studies or research done where they actually tried to, whenever someone was dying, they tried to weigh them, and then after they died, they weighed differently because maybe their soul left their body? And is there yeah, any- I think it was, it was in the 1920s, and it was a medical doctor. His name was McDougal, um, and he had, in the 20s, we didn't have sophisticated scales, you know, but he would take people that are dying, and he'd put them on a, actually on a, on a weighted, you know, scale, Um the theory be, being that if your soul releases from your body, you would weigh less. Um, you know, so I think that they call it the 26 gram uh, experiment. Um, it was really a failure. You know, he tested, I think, six patients, and one out of the six he measured, you know, like three, you know, like 26 grams, which is minuscule, uh, that they weighed less. But the equipment was so unsophisticated that it really, you know, had no value. But yeah, I mean, I thought it was kind of silly because, 
I don't think that your soul has weight. Yeah, no, you that's what, your mind or your consciousness. You know, yeah. that's even a trippy statement. Is does your soul have weight? You know, like just even saying that, that just sounds. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, rock on, man. Well, um, uh, just real quick. Sorry, last thing. Uh, since you you live out in New York, where do, I, I had no idea about this, but New York has a death tax. Like when you die, they tax you for dying. Is that true? Well, I don't know. I don't live in New York anymore. Okay, but I okay. Mean, I would. I wouldn't doubt it. Um. Uh, the, take money for everything. I mean, you know, right. estate taxes, debt taxes. I mean, you name it. So I don't doubt that for a second. Yeah, I just I'd heard it through a news story. They're like ten percent death tax when you die. I'm like, geez, that's insane. Like they just how much more? But um, Bob, where can we find you, man? Where where can people find you if they want to find your book, if they want to find your website, or, or what it is well, that you do? Yeah, well, the the, uh, the website for the foundation, which has a lot of the information we've been talking about, is spelled out foreverfamilyfoundation.org. Um, uh, the book is called the medium explosion. You can get that, um, on, on Amazon. Um, I write a blog called beyond the five senses.com, which is unrelated to the foundation, but it's just so I can get some thoughts. So my head doesn't explode. So I need to write, write some, uh, blog articles. Um, uh, we held, uh, grief retreats, four of them a year. One of them was featured in that Netflix docu-series, um, and I've, I've got a new book, but it's coming out in like three, four weeks. And it's, it's, it's not about mediums, but it's got a, a lot of information about what we're talking about tonight. Cool, man. Well, um, I'd love to have you on again once that book releases, if, if you want to. Um, so do we get to see your face on Netflix? Like, are you in this dot dot series? Yeah, we're, we're in the, the uh, there's four episodes. We're in, uh, there's six episodes. We're in episode four. And we have about 30 minutes of, of airtime. Bear in mind that they filmed 70 hours with us, 7 0. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so 70 hours of filming got whittled down to 30 minutes of content. Uh, and that includes allowing them to film one of our retreats in Connecticut from Friday afternoon to Sunday night. Right. <laughs> you know, they came to our, they turned our house into a movie set. It was, it's absurd, but it just shows you the nature of, you know, of television. You know, they, um, they have ridiculous budgets and they just keep filming and filming and then they see the editing room. I mean, I was a little upset because so many things, you know, got left out, but yeah. I understood it. For sure. You're still on there and the message is still getting portrayed out there. Their knowledge is getting spread as well. So, uh, yeah. Bob, I appreciate you, man. And if you, instead of writing blogs, man, if you ever need to just let some information out, feel free to email me, man. I'd love to have you on again. Okay. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. All right, Bob. Cheers. All right, take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Robert Ginsburg, uh, The Medium Explosion. I've got a chance to read a few of the chapters. Um, definitely highly recommend checking it out. Great conversation with him. Best thing you can do for this podcast is hit the like button, subscribe button. To all our junkies out there, stay fly and ring the bell. <laughs>